A Nation Changed with Kurt Fernley is sponsored by HireUp. A registered NDIS service provider, HireUp is Australia's leading online platform where people with disability can find, hire and manage their own support workers. To find out more, head to hireup.com.au. That's h-i-r-e-u-p.com.au. Harry, what's a disability? It means like you have a wheelchair and you've grown up and you have short legs. What else? It's not just people with short legs. Well, you can be blind, you can have one arm, or you can have no feet, you can have, or you can have no hands. Does your dad have a disability? Yes, a wheelchair. Hey, do you know what disability is? What is it? Yeah. Speak up. <laughs> do you know what a wheelchair is? Yeah. Who's got a wheelchair? Dad. Who? Daddy. Do you know what we spoke about? What an NDIS is? Well, an NDIS is it pays people to go to work. It gets people with disabilities to go to work. Do you think that you would give your pocket money so that somebody with a disability could be able to go out into and feel like they're the same as you? Yes. You'd pay your pocket money? Yes. Good. I'm Kurt Fernley, and this is A Nation Changed. I'm talking about my disability here with my kids because it's a part of our life. For us, for them, Disability is a physical disability, it's my disability. But disability comes in all shapes and sizes. Some physical, some intellectual, some invisible. 4.5 million Australian families all experience disability in their very own way. Nearly half a million people are on the NDIS. But the NDIS is a system that's been put in place to support all Australians. Because any of us, one day, could come to rely on it. Which is why it's vital we ask, is the NDIS living up to its principles? This is the question I've been trying to answer with this series, by peeling back layers and understanding how this once-in-a-generation social reform was born. In the last few episodes, we've heard about how the NDIS is changing lives for the better, but also about the ways that it's letting people down. In this last episode... We're looking at getting the NDIS back on track. And to do that, we first have to take a trip to the Senate. In March this year, Martin Hoffman, the CEO of the National Disability Insurance Agency, went to a Senate estimates hearing. An estimates hearing is where senators meet to take a closer look at how the government is spending taxpayer money. At this hearing, the head of the NDIA appeared to reveal something shocking. Between 2016 and 2019, in the transition to the NDIS, 1,279 people were assessed as eligible for the scheme, but died before receiving their first plan. Those are 1,300 human beings. Jordan Steeljohn is a senator for the Australian Greens. He's also the only Australian senator with a disability. Steeljohn was at this hearing. And there is a high probability that at least one of them 
may have been in a better space of their health now if the agency had delivered them the services they need. Of those who died, 30 were children between 7 and 18 years of age. 35 were under 6. But the idea that nearly 1,300 people died because the NDIS didn't get to them in time is one that Stuart Robert, the minister for the NDIS, rejects. Yeah, I reject it again, uh, completely, and utterly disagree with you on that. So that dreadful headline that I refuted, saying 1,200 people died waiting for support, no, they didn't. Minister Stuart Roberts says those who died were still receiving disability support from the states and territories until they transitioned to the NDIS. And ipso facto, if the NDIS had been there for them, they wouldn't have died. That is absolutely and utterly not the case. They were receiving the best care that the states and territories provided whilst transitioning through to the NDIS. My entire community of four million people, of which the best part of 500,000 are reliant on this scheme to live a life of meaning and purpose and have hope that things will get better. Being administered by a man who I've just heard basically said that 1,300 people dying without the services they need is not his problem. It's just... It's... Yeah. It's so not okay. Okay, so in previous episodes, we heard how a rush start to the NDIS caused problems. Now we're hearing that because the NDIS wasn't rolled out fast enough, people may have died as a result. It's a bit of a paradox and a confusing one at that. But really, it speaks to the complexity of the scheme. Any death, of course, is particularly early. Death is tragic, you know, for the, obviously the individual, but for their families and loved ones as well. This is Martin Hoffman, the boss of the NDIA. The NDIS is not the health system and is not responsible for the provision of life-saving or life-preserving therapy or treatment uh, or hospitalisation. And so issues around death are issues for the health system. It's not that if they had have got their plan more quickly, they would not have died because the cause of death is, um, you know, a health uh, issue. For Green Senator Jordan Steele-John, this is personal. God, I've just got to take a second as a disabled person to absorb that. He has absolutely no way of telling whether the provision of those services that they were waiting for would have saved their lives or not. What anybody could tell him is that the lack of services and supports are often a key factor in the development of negative health conditions that then lead to death prematurely. I find that actually really, as you can maybe hear in my voice, really quite personally distressing to hear. We deserve as disabled people so much better than that. What was revealed in March is just one example in a long list of concerns. Concerns about not just the NDIS, but what's going on in the disability sector overall. Many believe the revolutionary social reform is failing to meet its potential. 
And they believe the key to making it better is putting people with disability in the driver's seat of their own lives. When we say that the NDIS is ours, we mean it. It belongs to disabled people. We will defend it to the end because the prospect of doing otherwise is to live a life of the denial of our humanity. And that is not something that we are willing to accept. One, two, three, four, five. Yes, everything's below the red. Naz, can I get you to introduce yourself just for the uh, for the top of it? I'm Naz Campanella, and I am the disability affairs reporter at the ABC. You're a professional. I love the radio, boys. <laughs> Before we look at the changes being made to the NDIS, you have to know what's going on in the disability sector. In April 2019 a royal commission into the violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability was established. Naz, who is blind, is the ABC's lead reporter on the royal commission. I would be lying if I said that uh, this hasn't affected me at all. Obviously, I live with a disability myself. I have friends and family who live with disability. And, you know, this is my community. This is our community. There have been several times where I've caught myself sort of shedding a tear while listening to the hearing, while writing my stories. Um, and some of those have included things like people being left without support during COVID-19, people being left to feel like they were going to die alone without support, um, people struggling to get access to medication, food, um, the essentials that they could normally get a hold of ordinarily. And then hearings like in education where people were saying that they were verbally or physically abused um, by teachers, that teachers didn't understand the needs of their children. And a really heartbreaking one where a mum of a girl who lives with Down syndrome said that she was participating in a dance performance in front of the school, but her daughter was made to stand, you know, 10 feet away from the rest of the group. You know, a a real physical representation of of segregation um, and something that I think a lot of people think doesn't happen anymore. While the Royal Commission isn't an inquiry into the NDIS, Naz says the scheme is a critical part of the conversation. The good and the bad. The NDIS is factored in in a couple of ways. I heard from a mum whose son had a 13-year ordeal adjusting to group homes. And before the NDIS, she had real trouble sort of getting funding for one-on-one supports and things like that. And then when group homes just weren't working for him, you know, she was able to, through an NDIS package, um, get two support workers during the day, one overnight. Um, He was able to, you know, pursue his love of art and have a really fulfilling life. And she told the Royal Commission that that had been life-changing. There have been lots of people who have talked about some of the shortcomings, um, whether it be in the COVID-19 inquiry, mm. for example, um, the fact that it took a little while to get access to particular support. Naz says the hearings have been tough, but they've also helped create a real sense of hope in the disability community. I think many in the disability community want long-lasting change. They want to know that the things that are being heard, some of the really sad, depressing stories are not going to be repeated and that we learn from some of these mistakes or or shortcomings. 
I think some of the issues that are being canvassed are issues that the disability community has wanted canvassed for a very long time. Some of the testimony from the Royal Commission has been absolutely compelling. I will explain why I see the whole system of shared support and accommodation as wrong. This is Sam Peterson. Sam gave evidence at a hearing in Melbourne. In the shared support and accommodation, there was a buzzer system which I would press to let support workers know I needed assistance. For example, to let them know I was ready to get off the toilet or out of the shower. I could be waiting regularly for up to an hour or an hour and a half. My bottom would get sore from sitting on the commode chair. Sometimes the buzzer did not work. I complained internally with little result. A couple of the support workers said I buzzed too much, but I'm hyper aware of not crying wolf and only buzzed after 15 minutes if someone had not attended to me, so it was very insulting. There have been dozens of equally harrowing stories. When I spoke with the ABC's Naz Campanella in late September, the most recent Royal Commission hearings were on the use of psychotropic drugs. We're talking about things like antipsychotics, antidepressants and mood stabilisers, so some of the things like Valium, Xanax. The distinction is that these drugs are not being used to necessarily treat a mental illness. They're being used to alter the behaviour and emotions of people living with disability. And some of the things we heard was that these drugs are being overprescribed. They're being used to mask the behaviour um, or change it rather than, I guess, address the root cause of the problem. And the Royal Commission also heard that doctors are, are often all too willing to prescribe these medications as a quick fix. At the estimates hearing in March, there were more revelations. The NDIS watchdog, the Quality and Safeguards Commission, reported that NDIS service providers used unauthorised restraints more than 65,000 times. These restraints included seclusion, physical restraints such as strapping people down, as well as chemical restraints or sedation. In some cases, the use of psychotropic drugs. NDIS Minister Stuart Roberts' response is that the use of unauthorised restraints is nothing new. What you're also seeing for the first time ever is reporting. None of this reporting existed ever in the state and territory schemes, ever. There's not a great increase in the use of behavioural support or use of restraints or the areas we're talking about here. It's been commonplace uh, right across state and territory schemes for a very long time. Just none of it has been reported. There hasn't been in place a Quality and Safeguards Commissioner who can get a grip of it, who can publish it and be transparent and then seek ways for the sector to adjust. More figures show, despite receiving more than 8,000 complaints, the Quality and Safeguards Commission has issued only one fine and banned one service provider. This fine and ban were the result of the death of Adelaide woman Anne-Marie Smith in April. Anne-Marie Smith died from septic shock, organ failure, pressure sores, malnutrition and issues connected with her cerebral palsy after she was stuck in a cane chair for 24 hours a day. Her service provider, Integrity Care, has been banned from the NDIS. But this tough response is incredibly rare. The answer is not fining people. 
The answer is working with providers who are trying to do the right thing, testing them wherever possible, and helping providers to be better. Would it make everyone feel better if there were a thousand fines? I'm not too sure it'd make the scheme better. And you can't judge a regulator and their output and what they're doing by the number of fines they produce. As the Royal Commission continues on, the federal government also announced their response to the David Tune Review. The Tune Review is one of the biggest inquiries into the performance of the NDIS so far. It included 29 recommendations to improve the scheme. We spoke about some of these in episode three, but another recommendation that's really making waves is the introduction of independent assessments. So the independent assessments um, will involve someone paid for by the NDIS um, to come in and assess the level of funding, but also eligibility um, to be on the scheme, to remain on the scheme. NDIA boss Martin Hoffman says these assessments will make getting on the scheme a faster process. We want to use those to make it clearer and simpler and quicker and then allow participants to make their own decisions about how best to use their plan budget in order to assist them pursue their, pursue their goals and aspirations. But Naz Campanella from the ABC says these announcements have raised some massive red flags from the disability community. People within the disability community are quite concerned that, at a couple of things, um, namely at the template that's being used um, to do these assessments, that people doing the assessments don't necessarily know them, their history, uh, the context at which the condition manifests, and really that it's going to be done very quickly and a lot of people are quite worried that it's it's a way of weeding people out of the scheme. Joe Berry, an NDIS participant from Sydney, shares these concerns. Now, this person doesn't know you and the assessment's going to be like 20 minutes to an hour. If you've, A, got a complex condition, B, have any kind of difficulty advocating for yourself or explaining things, how are you meant to get across all that you need to a complete stranger in that amount of time? Like there's a lot of concern about what this means for people in all sorts of situations. And why, why take it out when you finally built relationships with therapists that know you? Minister Stuart Robert pushes back against any doubt around these assessments saying the NDIS was always designed with them in mind. Independent assessments were always a function of the NDIS as outlaid by the Productivity Commission, recommended by the Productivity Commission, recommended by the Tune Review. But Green Senator Jordan Steele-John says independent assessments on paper are very different than in practice. A pilot of these assessments ran between November 2018 and April 2019, which the Green Senator says didn't demonstrate the results they set out to show. If things like independent assessments get up, many of the other changes that are being proposed by the government are successful, the NDIS will turn a corner from a scheme that we are relentlessly attempting to preserve to something that has to be navigated and resisted by disabled people in this country. And that is the very last thing that this scheme was meant to be. This scheme is meant to be centred around choice and control. This policy is a command and control policy that has no place in the scheme 
whatsoever. Another concern from the disability community is that the people steering changes for the NDIS have little to no lived experience with disability. I asked Minister Stuart Robert, the biggest political power in this country when it comes to the NDIS, what he thought about this. How can you make decisions about what's best for people with disability when, when you yourself don't have that lived experience? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure I agree with you on that one. I, I grew up with my auntie Sue and her two children, Alex and, uh, and Joel, who are my cousins. Alex unfortunately passed away. Uh, so my life growing up was with my two little cousins uh, who both had uh, Down syndrome, who were both unable to speak, unable to hear, as well as other substantial intellectual challenges. That, that was my growing up. Uh, now, sure, it wasn't in my immediate family. They were my first cousins, but we spent a lot of time together. So my experience in terms of people with, with disability uh, has been substantial. But regardless, the scheme needed managerial expertise and leadership and strong ministerial guidance to bring the scheme to fullness. And that's what we've achieved. Senator Jordan Steele-John says while having family members or friends with a disability does play a part, it isn't personal lived experience. And it speaks to the critical need for people with lived experience of disability leading the solutions to these problems and in positions of power in the agency. Trish Jackson, an NDIS participant from Queensland, feels just as strongly. Get some disabled people with lived experiences up in the hierarchy. Get the disabled people to run it. You have people that have no idea on disabilities, no idea what it's like day in, day out, and they're making decisions that could change your life for the better, and yet they don't understand. And so they just deny stuff. So, yeah, I think NDIS should be run by disabled people. Anyone could end up disabled at any time. Here's Joe Berry again. No one thinks they're going to end up in an accident or be diagnosed with a condition that's going to, you know, disable them. I mean, I didn't think it would happen to me. Like, I have had my condition my whole life, but it didn't become really bad until my teens. And from then on, it's progressed quite significantly. And so you'd ask little me if big me was going to be in this situation, I would have said no. It doesn't mean it's bad, but it's not how I pictured it. And I guess the point is that anyone may end up disabled. And so we want to live in a society that will provide for us and care for us and include us. No one should be marginalised for any reason, like whether that be disability or whether that be your race or your gender. Or So we live in a country that provides those things um, and, yeah, we pay taxes to make that happen. There is a strong held belief that having people with disabilities at the helm of the NDIS will help get the scheme back on track and, in turn, change more lives for the better like it has for Cathy and her daughter, Emily, who we met in episode one. How has your experience changed uh, both yours and Emily's life since you've been able to participate in the NDIS? I'd have to say it's been, it's been enormous. It really has. Emily's able to, to do the things she wants to do. What do you do on Mondays? Meals on wheels. You do Meals on Wheels with Tara. Yep. Yeah. And then on Tuesdays? Oh, my... 
NRMA Service Centre. So what do you do there? What's the cars? The What's your car? <laughs> I don't want you to see my car, Emily. I, I haven't washed my car in about two years. You'd love to wash and polish Kurt's car, wouldn't you? Yeah. If you could choose anything to do today, what would that be, Emily? I'll go to the light rail depot. And what do you like about that? I give Lockie a hug. <laughs> Who's Lockie? Lockie the light rail. It's a tram. Oh, you get to give the actual tram a hug. Oh, now I know why you like trains. I think you've got a pretty great life, haven't you, Ems? The world's Emily's oyster, really. A decade ago, four Prime Ministers ago. The NDIS was still a dream. A dream that had some momentum for sure, but a dream nonetheless. One that had a political battle ahead of it, a funding battle and a a national rollout to hundreds of thousands of people. Today, it's here. From having lagged the developed world on disability, Australia can now be proud of its system. Is everything perfect? Far from it. In this series, I've heard from people who've explained how the bureaucracy of the NDIS is beyond challenging. I've heard how some feel the launch of the NDIS was too rushed and others think it wasn't rolling out fast enough and and may have even cost lives. Stories told at the Royal Commission show how far we still have to go. But step back and look at what's been achieved. And it's not hard to feel a sense of pride that tens of thousands of Australians could come together to campaign for something that has changed not just their lives, but the lives of many, many people to come. I've struggled in the past to be critical of the NDIS because I want it so badly to work. I want to see the lives of people with disability be given the same choice and control that was given to me. I want them to experience, every other person with disability, to experience... The idea, no, the fact that they deserve to be a part of community. The NDIS is a work in progress. To keep it on track, we, not just politicians and bureaucrats, we need to keep fighting for it. We need to make sure it lives up to its principles and ambitions. The road ahead, it's long. But already, because of the NDIS, Australia is... A Nation Changed. A Nation Changed is hosted by me, Kurt Fernley. If you enjoyed this series, jump on wherever you get your podcasts from and rate us up high. Also, tell your friends about what we did here. This podcast is a collaboration between Higher Up Australia and Audiocraft. Listen to episodes individually at higherup.com.au forward slash a nation changed. There are transcripts too at that same address.